Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today's sermon has Pastor Ben focusing on God's judgment. More specifically, how we need to view judgment through the lens of God's love and desire for redemption. It's really easy for us to view judgment as punishment, but it can be something much more broad than just what we see happen in courtrooms. So listen well to what insight Ben has to bring us. And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website and on our social media platforms. There you can see what is going on in the life of our church and even connect with us online. Links are in the show notes where you can check us out. And with that, enjoy today's sermon. Today we're, we're unpacking God's judgment. Like I asked at the beginning of service, what do you feel when you think of that concept? What do you think, what comes to mind when you think of God's judgment? Is it positive? Is it negative? Does it fill you with hope? Does it fill you with fear? Is it somewhere in between? We're going to try to unpack this concept just a little bit together. Before we read our passage for this morning, I just want to talk about what divine judgment can look like depending on where we come from. Divine judgment is one of those topics that you'll hear vastly different perspectives on based on your theological tradition or your interpretation of the Bible. If one's theology leans really heavy on God's sovereignty or power, One might envision divine judgment as legal retribution or punitive measures against evil and those who carry it out. If one's theology leans heavy on God's love, one might envision God's grace, being able to heal and restore even the worst that humanity has to offer through divine judgment. The tension tension with judgment, though, in this topic is always about justice. No matter the theological tradition, all of us, all of us who claim to follow Jesus, we all really want there to be justice in the world. Amen? We all want... Now, we can all say amen for justice in the world. How justice is done is where we start to bicker, right? (laughs) That's where we start to have that tension of how justice is played out. And the same is true when we think about God's divine judgment. How does God bring judgment in the world? We really do want God to respond and condemn evil and those who carry it out, especially against those who are the most vulnerable Yet where the tension comes into play is how justice applies to not them, but us. We like the idea of God's divine judgment towards others, especially the evildoers, right? We have a good picture of what we want divine judgment to look like against evildoers, but what about our lives and the evil we have done? What does our picture of divine judgment say about us? Do we want the same kind of justice applied to us 
as we want our greatest enemies? The same amount of mercy? The same amount of wrath? Not to mention how much shame we may be applying to our understanding of God's judgment towards ourselves rather than Christ's love. There are really important dynamics to consider as we think about this really complicated topic. And I don't pretend to solve all of these things in one sermon for you, right? I am trusting you to go forth and to multiply your knowledge on this topic, right? We're just getting the conversation starting here on unpacking these things. Well, the passage of scripture, I kind of gave it away at the beginning of service. The passage I really want to look at here may surprise you. It doesn't come from the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, as we might expect, but it comes from the gospel according to John. Probably the most quoted and memorized part of John's gospel, John chapter 3. We all know John 3.16, right? You're already running ahead of me on what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave us whosoever believeth in him, I memorized King James Version, whoever believeth in him shall have, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Growing up in the church, John 3.16 was one of the first verses I had memorized. I didn't have a clue what the rest of the chapter said, but I knew that verse, right? And such a powerful verse it is. There's a reason why that's one of the most known passages of Scripture, the reason I want to look at this passage, though, is precisely because of how it portrays God's desire for the world through Jesus Christ. It has powerful implications for how we see and understand God's judgment. Let me set the stage for you before we read the passage. As many of you know, Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee, and it's in the evening John plays with light and dark all throughout this passage. His name is Nicodemus. And I had a whole bunch of pastor jokes heard that they called this passage Nick at night. I won't make that joke. See what I did there? I made the joke without making the joke. Okay. But the, Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he's curious. He's heard Jesus speak. He's speaks with power and authority. But Nicodemus is still kind of shrouded in in ambiguity and curiosity and doesn't really understand fully what Jesus has come to say or be. And so, like a good disciple, Nicodemus comes and talks with Jesus. Even though he is among the Pharisees, he has these questions, these doubts. And I love how Jesus just condemned him at the door and sent him away for having questions. Oh, no, wait. Or, or condemning a Pharisee. No, he invited him in to have a conversation, right? such a beautiful chapter when we understand that this is in the midst of a conversation with a curious person. Then in John chapter 19, guess what we find out? Nicodemus is a disciple. He's taking Jesus' dead body and putting it in a tomb as a faithful disciple. So whatever happened in this conversation radically changed his life <laughs> and turned him into someone who follows Jesus. And so as we understand this context, this stage, it's in the midst of that conversation that John 3.16 comes about. Another thing to, to keep in mind before we read is this concept of world. If you grew up in, in circles of Christianity like I did, world was kind of synonymous with evil or corrupt, as in that is so worldly 
It is almost an overly negative word in how it's used today. This being in spite of the fact that the Genesis account shows us that God created the whole world and called it good. And John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, right? In John's context, the world was seen as a realm or a paradigm or an age, Evil was certainly set loose in the world, and it seemed to dictate so much of the world, like our world today, but the world was also the object of God's love, God's desire to save and redeem, not condemn or destroy. This context helps us to understand this passage from John chapter 3 a bit better, especially when Jesus starts to referring to a super obscure part of Israel's history having to do with Moses and snakes. And we'll get into that in just a moment. I know that's the most exciting part of today's sermon. So let's read this passage from John chapter 3. Listen to these words in Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Starting with verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, for fear of their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love how Jesus says, so that it can be seen plainly. And sometimes I hear some of his parables and I'm like, can you just speak plainly, right? But Jesus uses so much imagery and so does John here to to convey such big truths that sometimes I think we miss. Okay, so what's this business of Jesus comparing himself to Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness? That part has always thrown me off. Anyone else? Just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, you think of Jesus right away, right? Serpent on a staff. Yeah. No. So let's look at let's look at Numbers 21. We see this really interesting situation happen. Uh, Shane, if you'd bring up that picture of, of Moses lifting up um, a brass serpent in the wilderness. So we see this really interesting situation unfold. Israel is in the wilderness after being liberated from Egypt, and God is providing for all their needs, bringing quail into their their midst, manna growing from, from the ground, providing for everything that they need and acting as their guide. Yet the scriptures tell us that even in light of all of these provisions, this liberation, they are still grumbling against God and are becoming indifferent to God's purposes and desires for them. 
So during that time, a pandemic of poisonous snakes entered the nation and began biting people, and people were dying. Now, you could stop right there and say, divine judgment? (laughs) Are these snakes coming in because of God's judgment? Well, how does God respond to this? Well, They're complaining, I literally liberated them from Egypt. I sent 10 plagues on their behalf. I've given them quail, given them manna, pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, led them through the wilderness, and they're still complaining. Snakes, have your way, right? But what does God do? In the face of this disaster, God again shows that God wants to bring healing. God instructs Moses to build and hold up a brass serpent on a pole, telling him, and I quote Numbers 21, 8, if anyone looks upon it, they will live. So there were those who did look upon the brass serpent and those who didn't. Those who did look upon it were saved and lived, and those who didn't perished. What's interesting, side note about this, is this event was the motivation behind the symbol for medicine. If you want to bring up the next slide. Um, Serpents coiled around a, a pole. So what are we supposed to make of this in connection with Jesus? You can take that down, Shane. It really is, once we understand the profound connection here, it really is a powerful example of God's judgment. First, Israel had to acknowledge and confront what was causing death among them. A poisonous serpent, right? Just like their grumbling in the midst of provision, they were indifferent to their liberator and what they had been liberated from. So whether it was the trauma of their Egypt experience or the threat of poisonous snakes, they could not change what they refuse to face head on. So God instructs them to say, this is what is destroying you. Once you face it head on, then you can change your circumstances. But those of us who know the 12 step programs well, what is step number one? <laughs> you can't change what you don't admit, right? So we have to accept our circumstances for there to be healing of those circumstances. And we don't just deny things because we're trying to deny them or be ignorant of them. Sometimes we deny them because it's too painful to think about. Maybe part of why Israel was grumbling because they had just spent 400 years in Egyptian turmoil and bondage. And maybe God, as as I know who God to be, understood that and entered in the midst of their pain and say, we've got to start somewhere confronting what has been done to us and the evil that is tearing us apart so that you might be healed and live. So anyone who looks upon it will be healed and live. Second, what was causing death was also turned into the source of life by God. That's powerful. Once God instructed Moses to hold up the literal thing that was killing them, they could confront it, come to the light, to quote John, hi, come to the light 
and come out of death into life. Powerful. This is so interesting. Again, symbol of medicine here, because this is how vaccines and antidotes work. Confronting that there is venom and viruses that take people's lives, then taking small doses of that same venom or virus and putting it into ourselves so that we can build what? Immunity. Bringing us from where? The possibility of death to life so that we don't continue falling prey to the same death over and over and over again. This concept of bringing to light what is harming us is powerful. Facing it head on and allowing it to help us move away from things that destroy us to life-giving things. This is the very heart of divine judgment that is being described here in John 3. Let's read John 3, 19 through 21 again. This is the verdict. Jesus is using very explicit judgment language here. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear of their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Light exposes not only the evil in the world, but how we have been participating with that evil. Light represents greater awareness, deeper understanding, and wisdom. Once you know something, you can't go back and unknow that thing, right? Yet this awareness always brings about the understanding of how we have participated with that evil in the world. And that's not a comfortable thing. It brings about judgment. I remember the first time that I was made aware of how I was participating in a global economy. You grow up, you go to the store, you think, I can buy that toy, I saved up enough, and it's just from... Target, right? Target's in my local area. I'm, I'm buying from this local store. But as you get older, you're realizing, oh my goodness, I'm participating in a global economy and these products, maybe some of them, aren't even made here. <laughs> and they're made in other places in other parts of the world. And I went and visited Cambodia where the majority of our clothing is manufactured. And I saw firsthand where there were little kids with bloody fingers making our clothes that we buy for cheap here in the United States. I felt horrible. And then I went to Africa. <laughs> and in the Congo, where 75% of our minerals to make every electronic device that we have is fueling some of the deadliest conflicts since World War II in the Congo, literally creating widows and orphans. Isn't that... There's something in the gospel about widows and orphans, right? I don't think it has to do with taking their minerals from them. When I realized this, I was in college. Couldn't afford to feed myself, let alone make these different decisions. Because guess what? Buying locally can be pretty expensive. Buying things that are manufactured here in ethical ways can be really expensive. Buying fair trade coffee where you know people are getting enough for their work is hard. But what was I supposed to do? 
Am I supposed to just bury my head in the sand and say, I, I, I'm going to pretend I don't know that those things are happening? Or do I say, you know what? I'm going to make what choices I can right now to not participate with that kind of exploitation through the way that I spend my money and make small efforts to change my lifestyle, change my buying habits so that I'm not participating with that darkness. <laughs> and I, I believe that that should apply to every area of our lives, right? How are we participating in light? And how are we participating in darkness? And it is that, I think, an act of love. Why did I do that? Because I love my neighbor. And I don't want to, I, I believe I shouldn't exploit my neighbor through spending money. And I don't want to support companies that do that. <laughs> right? So it's, it, it's a big picture problem, but we participate in a big picture world now, right? We can't go back. So how do we acknowledge these things and confront them within their, ourselves and make changes in our lives? It's not a comfortable and easy task, yet as one who follows Jesus, I believe that that is the way to eternal life, opposing the ways of death. In everything that we do, oppose the ways of death because we are a people of eternal life. And guess what? Eternal life doesn't start after we die. You're living right now. Did you know that? So guess what eternal life is? It's just more life, <laughs> Life, eternal life begins now. So how are we participating in eternal life and light now? And there's that word again, believe. And I don't think we can talk about John chapter three without talking about the word believe because it's so poignant. Whoever believes in Jesus is gifted eternal life. So we put a lot of emphasis on that word believe. But let's just take a closer look here. We need a needed reminder here, especially in our context. And here's my radical, radical reinterpretation of this passage, okay? Super radical. So be ready, write my bishop, write the district. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that radical. I think that we should read this word believe. Whenever we see it in the Bible, our English translations, we need to read the word believe as trust. Because that's the Greek word that's being used there. The Greek word that we translate here as belief is actually the same word we get faith from. It's just the verb version of that. So if this word existed, I would say faithing is actually a better word, a better English word. Whoever is faithing, actively living out their faith in Jesus Christ, right? This word also means faith, trust, trust in, or entrusted with, and they're all active verb postures. This is such an important distinction in our Western world as guess how we define believe? We define belief as a cognitive acceptance of a list of ideas about God or Jesus Christ. Right? Whereas trust has different and more important connotations. Ideas about Jesus may make logical sense to me, but do I trust in Jesus? Or do I just have ideas about Jesus that I like? There's a huge difference there. For example, understanding that medicine will help with my sickness is different than taking medicine for my sickness. Right? 
I understand the logic of the gym. You know where I'm going with this. I understand the logic of eating right and healthy foods. It all makes sense to me. Am I going to get up in the morning and go to the gym? Am I going to try to change my lifestyle to be healthier? That's the difference between just cognitive accepting of logic or believing something or trusting in that thing and putting your beliefs into action. And that's really the heart of John 3.16 here. Let's, let's read it with this radical different interpretation here, right? John 3.16, I think it should be read this way. For God so loved the world. Let's read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his own and only son that whoever trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here is the heart of divine judgment, my friends. God loves the world. It doesn't say for God so loved only Christians, for God so loved only Americans, For God so loved only people in the 21st century and not anyone before. God so loved all that God had made, the entire cosmos, all of creation. For God so loved the world. You have to start there. God wants to save the world. God wants to heal the world through Jesus Christ and God brings the light and awareness of what is currently destroying our world, ourselves, and others. Just like Moses holds up the very thing that was destroying Israel on a pole, Jesus is held up on a cross to show us how evils like greed, lust, violence, and so many other things that we participate in individually and collectively is bringing about destruction rather than restoration. Do you know that the cross isn't just God's response to humanity? The cross was our response to Christ's love. So looking at Jesus on the cross means this is what we do to innocence. This is what we do to radical love and radical forgiveness. When people come along and want to forgive and love our enemies, this is what we do to them. We respond in violence to nonviolence. <laughs> we want Jesus riding on a war horse, not a donkey. What a wuss. We want Jesus to tell his disciples to take up swords, not put them away. Guess what we do to people like that, right? Don't tell us how to spend our money. Don't tell us to think about racism. Don't tell us to think about patriarchy or how we subjugated women. Don't tell us to think about the LGBTQ community in a more compassionate way. This is what we do. It's the people who speak truth to power when we are in positions of power that we put on crosses. And God says, I'm holding this up as this is what's destroying you. Are you going to come to the light? Are you going to see what is destroying you, your loved ones, and the world around you? even creation itself, are you going to respond in love, in light, or are you going to keep participating in the darkness that's destroying you? Sin at its very core is what harms us and harms other people. And when we see that light of love, we have to confront that darkness 
The difference between those who are in the light and in the darkness is the difference of those who participate in the way of healing, restoration, and justice and take it even upon themselves to change their own lives rather than ignore and resist the present reality. We can even see this in Matthew 25 where Jesus is shown returning at his second coming and he separates the sheep and the goats and we all want to be on the sheep side, right? After his second coming and they are not judged based on their ideas about God or whether they have proper theology or the correct logical understanding of Jesus. What does Jesus, the king of the world, say? Whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. They were judged based on their compassion or lack of compassion for others. And how do you have compassion for the most vulnerable? You understand the oppression and injustice against them. Whatever you did, however you spent your money, however you act in the world, whatever we participate, how does it impact the least among us? Can you imagine if everybody thought that way? From the people in the highest positions of power to the lowest. How does it impact the most vulnerable in our world? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. That's the king saying that in Matthew 25. (sighs) Understanding this important approach to divine judgment here in John 3 not only helps us to understand the final judgment a bit better, but also how we think about believers and non-believers. And I wanted to end my sermon on that topic. What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus before? What about those who have only heard a distorted version of the gospel? And distorted, I don't mean wrong, right? I mean like when I visited Cambodia and Vietnam and their only idea of Jesus is America dropping bombs on them. Or when I visited the Congo and Rwanda and their only idea of Jesus is the Western world enslaving them. Or in my own culture where their only idea of Jesus has been church hurt, religious trauma, and abuse. Are they going to be saved? If we understand it only as ideas about God, we might condemn the very people that the church has hurt. What if instead of saying believers and non-believers because of that idea component, what if we said healers or destroyers? When we look at someone's life, even if they identify with another religion or no religion at all, do we see light or darkness? Do we see them opposing injustice or denying it even exists? Do we see them pursuing healing in the world or indifference to the world? Do we see them pursuing healing of the world or its destruction? Do we see the way of Jesus in them, even if their ideas about Jesus may be distorted or not present at all? Most importantly, are we asking these questions about ourselves more than we ever ask about other people? Here are some action steps for us to think about this concept throughout the week. What areas of your life need to be brought into the light? This is an uncomfortable task, but there's so much good when we do that. Just taking into awareness, what things cause you to be the most upset? That's my, that's my question I ask myself. I get really angry over certain things. 
And more often than not, my anger is evidence that I don't know that topic well enough. And some awareness needs to be brought about. And then it's like that passion, it turns from anger because I just want to throw things and post things online really upset. And like, that's what I want to do, right? But getting angry against injustice is consistent passion, right? As Martin Luther King Jr. said, um, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. If you're only passionate about a topic for like a year or just maybe even a month, are you really passionate about it? Anger is like a firework. It's bright and burns bright for a while, but your passion to end that injustice, it's it's a long job. So what areas need to be brought into the light that maybe we need to think deeper, more awareness about? Number two, what ways do you need to interpret God's judgment through the cross of Christ? Because oftentimes we think about uh, God's judgment as God sitting as a judge in a courtroom (laughs) when this is how God judged the world, came and poured God's self out for the world in self-sacrificial love. So how do we think about God's divine judgment through the lens of the cross rather than the lens of a gavel, right? Because our symbol isn't a gavel. You notice that? What's our symbol? It's a cross. And on your own, read John chapter 3, reading that heretical difference there, right, between believe and trust. Um, And see how it changes your understanding of that chapter, that those who trust in the way of Christ are the ones who are in the light because they're actively pursuing the light. Thanks for listening today. Here at Cathedral of the Rockies, our motto is all means all, and we strive to truly live this out. You can help be a part of this by giving to us online. Here at the Amity campus specifically, We feed the hungry through our very active food pantry. Also, we are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online and serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.